Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm here with my co-founder on Women's Agenda and Agenda Media, Tala Lambert. So much on the agenda today. I will be sharing a, a chat that I did have with Shirley Chowdhury yesterday in the lead up to the launch of season four of our other podcast, The Leadership Lessons. But before I get there, just to talk a few of our kind of key stories that we've been following this week on Women's Agenda, one, of course, being uh, the Biluela family uh, and particularly the, I think I'll call it just the lack of, God, the absolute void of compassion coming from certain ministers there um, and maybe a little bit of disappointment as well in the new Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews. Um, a little bit of disappointment, a lot of disappointment actually because I think there was quite a bit of hope there So, regarding her taking on that portfolio. So we'll get to that in a moment. Also to talk about school uniforms, which has been a hot topic for a long time regarding what girls can wear to school, um, whether they can wear pants and whether the school uniforms that they, if not being told they have to wear or at least being encouraged to wear, is restrictive and potentially preventing them from meeting the same levels of activities as their male counterparts. We'll touch on Maddie Groves, the swimmer who has issued a very strong statement regarding Swimming Australia as she has pulled out of the Olympic swimming trials that are starting in a few days. And hello, Tala. Hey, Ange. Nice to see you. How's your Friday? It's okay. We are recording this in a little bit of a different way this time. Uh, Tala is at home and I'm trying to stay well away from her because... She's been sick this week, so. Don't pretend like you don't typically do that. Yeah, I know. I am really quite disgusting right now, so it, it makes sense that you are well away from me. I feel like most people should be well away from me right now. That's, yeah, that, that <laughs> and that's the thing in these COVID times as well is that even the slightest illness, you do not venture out and you certainly don't go to work. So, <laughs> okay, so let's go to the Biloela family. So you'd be hard-pressed to not have heard this story over the last couple of years, but certainly over the last week as we've learnt that um, – the Ranika, uh, the three-year-old daughter, uh, one of two young girls born in Australia, uh, part of that family who are now on Christmas Island, has been flown uh, to Perth, medical emergency, uh, and as it's kind of been revealed over the past few days, we've learnt that um, Theranika has been sick for a good 10 days or so. There are reports that her mother Priya has been, you know, urging to get her daughter to hospital. There were even reports that are, as we've learnt that um, Theranika, uh, the three-year-old daughter, uh, one of two young girls born in Australia, uh, part of that family who are now on Christmas Island, has been flown uh, to Perth, medical emergency, uh, and as it's kind of been revealed over the past few days, we've learnt that um, Theranika has been sick for a good 10 days or so. There are reports that her mother Priya has been, you know, urging to get her daughter to hospital. There were even reports that her mother Priya had been asking for antibiotics for her daughter and was told that she'd need to have a fever for five days before they could access those antibiotics. So it is an absolutely awful, shameful story. One thing about this story that I find particularly frustrating, as I alluded to at the top of the conversation, is our new Home Affairs Minister, Karen Andrews. And really, 
A lot of the comments from different ministers over the past couple of days, there has been some confusion. There was this idea that, you know, there are talks occurring, they, that this family uh, may be resettled in New Zealand or possibly the United States, but now there's, you know, been other comments that that is actually not a possibility. So everything is still up in limbo. And I think that there was this hope, and we had seen little pieces of this, that Karen Andrews um, would would show more compassion than her predecessors, certainly, on some of these issues, particularly when it comes to resettlement options. Yeah, I, mean, I just think, as you said, it's just such a shameful act on the part of the government. And you've got to ask yourself what they think that they're actually trying to prove here. And it's actually not resonating with Australians um, at large anymore either, because I think they're trying to maintain their shtick about the fact that we have border security, that we won't allow people smugglers, that we've got this hard, hard, hard stance against that. They sought refuge in Australia. They had two daughters here who should be Australian citizens. They've been born here. Um, and they were just much beloved community members in Biloela. Um, and people have been fighting so hard for two years now to have them returned to their home in Biloela. Uh, so the government's stand on this one is just bizarre. It's costing millions of taxpayer dollars for them to prove some bizarre point um, and to really um, create so much trauma in this family's life. You know, the fact that that little girl, she's a toddler, was left to suffer for that long without getting proper medical treatment um, is just disgraceful. And there are no words that I can really share on that. But I just think for a government that is sorely, sorely needing to um, present an image of one that cares about Australians, one that is compassionate, following everything that has happened this year, indeed, you know, they've sent multiple of their MPs to do empathy training. Um, this is just showing such a, a complete lack of that it's it's a huge waste of time and it's a you know there are just there's no way of properly um explaining what they're doing here or analyzing what their their motive is um and I think that really it's going to cause uh, cost them in the end because as I said I, I think most Australians are fully behind the fact that these this family is returned back to their home um and if the government was smart, they'd just make that call now. Absolutely. And the images are really powerful. A stark reminder that we're keeping children in detention, which is an absolute violation of international human rights law. I'm separating her from her family. Her mum has said that Tanaka is feeling really um, distraught and distressed at being separated from her dad and her other sister at this point in time. Um, and why should it be just Priya, her mum, why should it be that she is the only one that has to be there? Again, it kind of shows as well our government's position on families and who should take responsibility there as well. Um, and I, yeah, look, I just think it's really going to come and bite them in the ass, like what they've done here, and it should do. Um, there is, yeah, there's just nothing to say here. They they need to do the right thing. It's already t- way too late, but if they do it now, at least, you know, it'll be some, some way um, 
back to a base and people will um people would respond accordingly to that yeah i i hope so i think that um Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his comments that he's made over and over again when he talks about being a father of girls. And I usually, I just always cringe when he says that, but in this case I just want him to reflect deep on that, that as a father of girls, as a father of two girls just like um, this family as well, to consider the idea of your three-year-old toddler being so sick with fevers for days and, you know, anyone, if you've had a child with a fever, even having a fever for five minutes is so terrifying, let alone to have it go on for days and days when you know that that does require medical help. To be in a position where you can't actually access that care where you're asking for help but the people who are supposed to be, you know, looking after you in this detention situation are refusing to do so and refusing to give you that help at all, refusing to give you the choice that any parent should have about determining when they can seek medical attention for a child. It is so disgusting and so horrible. Yeah. Agreed. I reckon that most Australians are f- fully um, in the the Billowella family's corner, and they want them returned home. Obviously, you know that messaging around people smugglers and and stopping the boats and being tough on border security is one that the government has really held strong to, and it's worked for them in the past. Um, but I also think that they've proved their point there. I don't think if they were to make a an exception for this you know, unique case that it would would really send um, a message that they were backflipping on that. So I just, I think it is just a very strange move um, aside from, you know, everything else and every other negative adjective that you can possibly throw that this way. But, um, you know, I, I do think that the the money that is being wasted on trying to prove this point is is very odd. It is odd. Um, obviously, Karen Andrews is Home Affairs Minister, but that idea of who really is in charge and, and making those decisions, and it probably isn't uh, Karen Andrews here. I think we can guess who it is. Uh, I don't know. And, you know, we saw Michaela Cash made the comment that the boats that, you know, the people smugglers are watching this, they're watching this every day, that they're constantly watching to see if we blink. We cannot blink. I don't know where this ends. I, ho- I hope it ends very soon and I hope this family is sent back to that Queensland town where they should be, where they've found friends and a community and a home and that is the the only rightful outcome here. And I think you're right. Obviously this is a directive that's coming from the top but these MPs also need to grow a backbone. You know, Dave Sharma coming out and saying he didn't know the the details of the situation but he agreed in principle that that families should stay together well you know get acquainted with the situation Dave like you should be it's pretty you know it's across every major newspaper mate if you're not reading then there's a problem and then Karen Andrews you know holding to the line McKellie Cash coming out and and with that stupid like we can't blink um jargon I mean it's just ridiculous and all of them all of them should be just deeply ashamed of their own part in this and and the Prime Minister the most um, out of all of them. Okay, on to another story. 
Let's go to Maddie Grove just briefly on this one because this has just kind of come out in the past 24 hours or so. So Maddie Groves is a, an Olympic swimmer um, and she has just pulled out of the upcoming Olympic trials saying that her withdrawal is basically the result of, as she puts it, misogynistic perverts in the sport. Um, she won two silver medals at the 2016 Rio Olympics and she has issued these statements across uh, social media just, I guess, day, days before those trials will begin to uh, kick off in Adelaide. Um, her quote, uh, let this be a lesson to all misogynistic perverts in sport and their bootlickers. You can no longer exploit young women and girls, body shame or medically gaslight them and then expect them to represent you so that you can earn your annual bonus time is yeah I mean look I think more will come to light in the coming days and probably you know I'm sure Maddie will get an interview where she'll um detail uh what she meant and the story behind it um and we'll know yeah we'll know a little bit more then but it's a real worry I mean I I agree with you I don't think that she would have made this call lightly and she's clearly trying to make a point here um and to send a message um that there could be toxic behaviour in these circles um, and it needs to to be called out and people need to be held accountable. So um, I will, you know, be interested to see what comes of that um, and who else maybe speaks out as well because presumably if Maddie has experienced any of the, the behaviour that she is speaking about and, and um, encountered misogynistic perverts in swimming, um, then there'll be other women that have also experienced the same. So we will find out what this means, um, but it could be a story that blows up. Yeah, yeah, and if not now because, I mean, the timing may not uh, work for those people involved, it is certainly something that could blow up in the coming weeks, months or even years in the sense that having somebody speak out like this does open up uh, the can of worms, I guess, so that other people come forward and feel perhaps maybe safe in saying something. So it'll be, it is concerning and I hope that if anything is going on or has gone on with certain individuals in this sport that we can learn a little bit more and um, make sure that uh, and hear that Swimming Australia is doing whatever needs to be done to address these issues and same across every sport as well. I mean, these are stories that we hear over and over again across these sports, particularly when athletes involved in such a, a young age and require so much dedication uh, to their sports and, and really put themselves up to the mercy of different coaches and things like that to uh, get to their best performance levels. So these these stories are everywhere and we've seen how horrendous they can be uh, when we think about, you know, gymnastics in the United States. Um, and, and what occurred there and, and what was revealed had been going on for years and years and years. So we want to make sure that those sporting bodies are addressing it so anyone, that people can be held to account but also to make sure that no other young people are, are impacted. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And we do know that this happens, right? Like, as you said, it's um, it's been well documented across many different sports. Like Mick Warner, sorry, in our podcast last week actually identified, you know, his investigation into the AFL and, and women being mistreated in the AFL. So it's ubiquitous. It happens everywhere. Um, you know, my heart goes out to Maddie. I hope she's okay. Um, but 
So on to school uniforms. Did you wear a school uniform, Tala? <clears throat> not today. Um, not today. I just meant in, in general, during your time growing up, were you required to wear a particularly restrictive school uniform? Uh, look, I went to a public school, but it was a public school that was trying to be a private school and they were trying to enforce this school uniform and I was the um, thorn in their side for a long time because I was very adamant that I was not going to wear said school uniform, which caused my parents much grief because there were many notes home about my, you know, unruly behaviour um, and unwillingness to conform um so yeah look but I I completely agree with like this study that that girls are being prohibited because of restrictive school uniforms and we know in many private schools you know girls are still being expected to wear pleated skirts and um stockings and um boys are, are having to wear ties and and you know it's just I don't really understand what the purpose of it is and and all it does is perpetuate, you know, this this cycle of girls not being able to properly participate in in sports at school. Obviously, given the study from Newcastle Uni, they've showed the exact stats around it and how big a gap that actually is. Um, but what does that mean for for girls and women's lives after that? You know, if they're getting this start in life where they are restricted in the clothing that they wear so that they can't participate or feel comfortable participating in in sports at schools you know that probably goes on into when they're they're older um and that's not such a um normal part of their routine because they have been restricted from it at school um I think it's a huge worry and I again I just don't really know what the purpose of it is like I mean I get that school uniforms are easy in a way and footing and and that's that's always a good thing but I I just think you know if everyone was able to wear sports uniforms um if girls were freely able to wear shorts and pants whenever they wanted and to have more gender neutrality that can only be a good thing you know if we know that this is what's happening um we need to change it yeah so basically the University of Newcastle, they and this was reported in the Sydney Morning Herald and then we've kind of picked up on this story as well and had a look at some other angles of it and just written, or Jesse too has written a comment piece on it. So they reveal this, basically there's this activity gap between boys and girls. And we're talking about primary school here. So it's it's probably a different story in, in um, high school. But in primary school, they found that 52% of primary primary school age girls are meeting recommendations for moderate to vigorous physical activity over a school day compared with 70% of boys. That's quite a significant gap there. And the researchers don't yet know if it's coming down to school uniforms. There could be a number of different factors, um, plenty of factors um, that, that may be contributing to that. And what they want to find out, basically, they want to pursue this research to see what kind of impact school uniforms do actually have. Every now and again, we do get this story about school uniforms and where are we at, why are we still asking this of, of girls and young people. I understand the idea of a school uniform. I think it actually is. I'm very grateful that um, we that I went to a school that did have a school uniform because I think that not having a school uniform can actually um, open up 
all sorts of other issues, particularly if you don't have um, a great budget to afford clothes, um, particularly if you don't feel comfortable in terms of dressing uh, to a certain style. You know, it can cause lots of different self-esteem issues. So having a school uniform does, I think, just, you know, keep everyone in a bit more of a, a neutral playing field. But then at the same time, the fact that the uniforms between boys and girls are so different does not really keep you on a neutral playing field. And I see this in my own kids' school, in a public primary school, and where, you know, the boys kind of go to school wearing a polo shirt and shorts and girls actually do wear tunics and uh, pleated skirts and various other things about this school uniform. They look very nice, but it's very different to what's being asked of the boys in terms of their attire. There is so many differences that can be there addressed and one thing I kind of noted from this story was that over the past, say, decade, maybe the last few years, active wear for women has become so common and there's huge business around it. It's that it's You can pay a lot of money for active wear. You can also pay not so much money for active wear and get something that's pretty decent. And there are so many designers and businesses in this space trying to appeal to this market around active wear, where a lot of us, you know, we've, we don't even necessarily wear it to the gym. We just wear it around the place. <laughs> that's It is what it is. And we've also seen how even in corporate environments that there seems to be a lot more choice around what women can wear, where typically you had to maybe wear high heels in the past, you can get away with wearing flats and that type of thing. I think with all this change around fashion, it's amazing that this hasn't kind of taken into schools. Like why isn't there a great activewear brand that's coming along and saying, hey, we're going to design something really great for boys and girls that looks smart, that looks good, makes them all look consistent, like they've made an effort, but is really suitable for running around hanging upside down on monkey bars and, and all these other things. I think that there is a really good space there for somebody to come up with this and to make it affordable to make it accessible in big W, you know, all these different places where you can go and buy different aspects of your school uniform. Let's, you know, make it easy. Let's let's rethink school uniform. Yeah, I think you've just come up with a really good idea. Okay, should we on. start this business? <laughs> just our side hustle. I mean, I'm such a good, like, I'm like a great designer. Like I just, I'm also well up on fashion. I don't know if you've seen me. I mean, you do, you see me often. You know that I am right on when it comes to fashion so clearly we're the right people for this you're cutting edge um (laughs) look I agree with you I think it is a big opportunity um surely you know one of the uniform providers as it stands could actually step in and do that as well but you know like they have school uniforms and they have sporting uniforms that are completely fine just let kids wear that um and let them be comfortable and do what they need to do and be um, on an equal playing field from from the outset across all areas. Every school needs to be looking at this and examining what their practices are around this because, um, yeah, we know that there is a gap there obviously. So it's just um, it, it needs to be fixed up. Okay, so finally before I do just cross to the interview that we did with Shirley, I Another study that we reported on this week was actually quite a massive sleep study. So it involved, it was in the UK, 85,000 participants, and they basically, these researchers used sleep data gathered from the wrist activity monitors of those 85,000 participants to find 
that people with a misaligned sleep cycle were more likely to report depression, anxiety, and have fewer feelings of well-being. So this is where the researchers have come out and basically looked at this sleep information and they've talked about the reality of health problems that are associated with, as they call it, the night owls. So people who are prefer to work late at night, prefer to be up late at night, in many cases have to be up late at night or work late at night compared to those who might consider themselves to be more morning people. So, and they talk about, you know, these night hours basically having to live and adjust to being in a morning person's world. Yeah, you know I do. Angie's, for anyone that's listening, Angela is a weirdo who wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and goes to bed at like 7 o'clock at night. <laughs> there's, there's nothing going on after 7, come on. <laughs> I don't actually go to bed at 7 for the record. but No, I am definitely a morning person and I work to that. I'm also an insomniac. I've suffered insomnia for many decades and one of the best things that's ever worked for me is around sleep restrictions. So I know that I work nicely in the morning so do you relate to that at all um surely you know one of the uniform providers as it stands could actually step in and do that as well but you know like they have school uniforms and they have sporting uniforms that are completely fine just let kids wear that um and let them be comfortable and do what they need um, on an equal playing field from from the outset across all areas. Every school needs to be looking at this and examining what their practices are around this because, um, yeah, we know that there is a gap there, obviously. So it's just um, it, it needs to information. And they've talked about the reality of health problems that are associated with, as they call it, the night owls. So people who uh, prefer to work late at night, prefer to be up late at night in many cases have to be up late at night or work late at night compared to those who might consider themselves to be more morning people. So, and they talk about, you know, these night hours basically having to live and adjust to being in a morning person's world. Do you relate to that at all? Yeah, you know I do. Angie's for anyone that's listening, Angela is a weirdo who wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and goes to bed at like 7 o'clock at night. <laughs> there's, there's nothing going on after 7. Come on. <laughs> I don't actually go to bed at 7 for the record. But no, I am definitely a morning person and I work to that. I'm also an insomniac. I've suffered insomnia for many decades and one of the best things that's ever worked for me is around sleep restrictions. So I know that I work nicely in the morning so I try who told you about that no you told me that but I realized that I've been doing it for years you were just doing the other end where you try to go to bed late at like 12 and you really try to stay up for hours I'm like well what are you doing you're crazy and then you'd get up at six whereas like so trying to get that six to seven hours in around those patterns um but I guess one thing with this sleep study yeah. I find interesting I mean 85,000 participants and we see that there are some significant sleep issues among particularly women uh, over 30, it seems like. And this is, you know, I'm talking like small surveys that we've done where we've asked ab about these issues and had women self-reporting a lot of um, th issues that they're having, just waking up really early, say in the morning, and never being able to get back to sleep, um, kind of wandering around alone in the house, um, just really sleeping differently to if they've got a male partner mentioning that as well. And um, particularly around pre-menopause, if 
you can actually use that term. People have been reporting to us around having sleep disturbances at this time. And okay, there's just so many here. There's a you know a sleep gap, a uniform gap, an activity gap. So many gaps seem to be coming together to just be making um, the health and well-being of women really. When difficult. will it end? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, I I think that there are so many women in Australia and across the world that um, suffer from poor sleep, and I never knew what that meant. Um, I've always been a champion sleeper. I could sleep anywhere uh, until I had my baby 18 months ago and then everything turned down and I have been a raging insomniac for that pretty much that entire time. Um, and I am a night owl. And these, these kind of studies do concern me, you know. I think that um, we have to, you know, on the nights that I get good rest, I feel so much better the next day and I know um, – what kind of impact it is having on my health. And I know that long-term, if I'm not getting adequate sleep, it's it's going to cause me a, a world of, of problems. So I do feel for, for the women that are, um, are suffering from insomnia or sleep disturbance, I, I, you know, hope that there are things that are being done to try to alleviate that. Um, you know, I think so much of it it comes down to excess mental load a lot of the time. Like the other night I woke up in a, a hot panic um, because I, you know, realised we're moving house at the moment and I have so much packing to do and I'm trying to run the business and I am and I was like, how do I do this? And, you know, my partner's helping, but I do think that like women just carry so much of that, that um, emotional and mental loads so much of the time and that causes that would be causing so so many of these problems and and obviously um, hormones play into it as well. So, you know, wherever we can get on women's health and, and trying to um, lessen this particular gap, um, we need to do um, because everyone needs their, their eight hours of beauty sleep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to go to the, the um, conversation that I had with Shirley. Uh, so we are so excited to announce that Shirley is our uh, – a host for season four of the Leadership Lessons and Shirley is building off the legacy in the 30 or so episodes that Kate Mills has already recorded there for seasons one to three. Um, so Shirley, for those who don't know, she is a dynamic and internationally recognised business leader. She's got experience across um, industries including law, financial services, Indigenous education, the not-for-profit sector. Most recently she was the CEO of the Go Foundation uh, she also chaired the Women's Agenda Leadership Awards panel uh, last year and oh, sorry in 2019 and for the 2020-2021 Leadership Awards. So that's where we really got to know Shirley um, really well. So um, Shirley's just really interesting. I love the first couple of conversations that I've been privileged to hear. In fact, the first episode that Shirley's recorded with Turia Pitt has dropped as we are recording this. So you can go and find that now it's under the leadership lessons and you can go and hear that episode that uh Shirley has already done there but I've heard some of her other uh some rough cuts of her other episodes and I, I, she she brings a lot of uh warmth and depth to these conversations um you know hearing these stories of these different women while also unpicking some of their best leadership tips and ideas around the great traits that we need to to get through the critical decade ahead so I will go to that interview now Shirley, we are so lucky to have you on season four of the Leadership Lessons, building off the first 
three seasons that Kate Mills uh, hosted for us and interviewing such a wide range of interesting women along the way. And we love that you're here to continue that work as well and to really grow the podcast from here. But I guess, I mean, and listening to some of the first recordings that you've done, I'm starting to learn a little bit more about your own leadership story as well and so much that I didn't know and it's been quite a fascinating journey and there is there is so much to your career. I thought maybe you could just start by sharing maybe a key turning point or moment that puts you on the leadership path. Thanks, Angela. I, firstly, thank you. Thank you for your generous comments. I'm so thrilled to be here um, and would also like to recognise Kate's legacy in the first three series because without her, we wouldn't be here today. I think for me, there, there was not just one turning point. It was probably constant. You know, as a baby lawyer in a law firm, it's when you get to the point where you're working with junior lawyers and helping them as in-house counsel, managing a group of people, um, in banking and finance where you've got a group again and you're leading a group or a function. So I think it was probably baby steps. I think Taria talked about baby steps in her first, in our first podcast, and that rings so true with me because there was never one bolt of lightning. It was little, little, little things constantly. And then one day you wake up and you realise that you're getting calls asking if they, if you can have coffee with people and if you can help them on their journey and you realise that actually you've become that person in somebody else's life. Wow. Yeah, you've made that transition and you need to go back and, and give back as well with that as well. It's so important and you learn so many things as you do that too. Absolutely. I've learned way more mentoring people and acting as a role model of sorts for people than I have I think, um, on my own journey by myself. You don't learn when you're by yourself. You learn with other people. Part of the premise of this podcast is around this idea of how to lead for the critical decade ahead and having those questions with different leaders and, and very much leading in different capacities, not necessarily a very, you know, particularly traditional leader as we might think of somebody or a CEO of a big organisation. It's not necessarily about that. We've got conversations with with all sorts of women who are leading in their own way. What do you see as some of the critical challenges ahead over the next decade and particularly the role that women leading will play in solving some of those challenges or coming up with solutions, I should say, to some of those challenges? I think we're at a really unique point in our history, um, not, not just as women, but as leaders, as people, as humans on this planet. COVID showed us that we are capable of leading differently, of creating differently, of thinking differently, of working differently. And it forced us to actually confront that paradigm and just jump in. I think that gives us a huge opportunity for the next decade to continue to build on that. For me, that's about capitalising the 51% of our population that we really haven't been capitalising well. And that's a number of things. It's making sure that men are empowered to support women, making sure that they can take parental leave, that they can job share, that they can work flexibly because without men having all those things that we want, we can't actually take advantage of them properly. I think the evidence is really clear. I'm reading a book at the moment actually that talks about 
the statistics in raising women. It's Melinda Gates' new book, you know, um, The Moment of Lift. And she talks about if you give a woman a microfinance loan, if you help a woman in a community, the effect of that is actually not that she just helps herself, but she lifts the whole community. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us because women bring different ways of thinking to the table. We've been on the edge for so long looking in. We've had the opportunity to think about those different ways of doing things, about approaching boardrooms differently, approaching leadership differently, approaching people management differently, all of those different aspects. Um, There's a great gift in that that we need to capitalise and there's a lot of research that says if we can increase our diversity and inclusion in management pipelines in the boardroom, there is money to be made out of this for companies who do it well. I just think that's a no-brainer. And so part of what I'd like to explore with all these amazing women that we're interviewing is talking to them about how they see the next 10 years panning out. What do they see um, leadership needing? What are the qualities of leadership that we need for the next decade to do things differently? What are the qualities of that leadership Um, and how do we recognise it? So one of the things, you and I have talked a lot about this in the Women's Agenda Leadership Awards. We are so used to looking for leadership in a particular way, having it sound a particular way, look a particular way, walk into a room in a particular way. And we need to break that that stereotypical thinking and start looking for it differently. You know, a strong leader may not be the person who walks in and is articulate and commands the room. It may be a really quiet, introverted person who just has a really special quality and people follow that person. And so we need to open our eyes to all forms of leadership. And I think that's the beauty of these conversations. We can get these insights from women who are doing it in different ways across a whole bunch of different sectors and industries and learn from that because it's all about learning. Yeah, and I feel that, I mean, over the past year with COVID, that idea of moving away from the stereotypical great leader of, of what we expect, it has given us that opportunity to do it in a really fast and transformative way in the sense that none of those leaders, particularly across the business world, had experience with what we dealt with. It just, we, we just didn't have that experience. You could have been at this game for decades. You don't have that experience. Everyone was figuring this out for the first time. And I think that is part of why we saw uh, so many women come through and really highlight uh, some clear and new qualities that are so important and we saw that particularly on the world leadership stage we've we've, you know gone through the examples over and over again around um uh, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand um a couple of the leaders across the Nordic countries um also in Taiwan as well some that that real response to the immediate um parts of the pandemic we've also seen we've done these surveys across women's agenda as well across um how you know empathy and communication and these sorts of traits really came through and have been highlighted as really significant and so important as we move forward and rebuild and hopefully reset from here absolutely there's a great quote racing around LinkedIn at the moment from Jacinta Ardern where she says she rejects people who say empathy can't be a quality of leadership and she's been the shining light in the last 20 and hopefully my hope is that we can take the lessons that we learnt during the last 18 months 
and keep capitalising on them because it'll be the organisations that think we revert to business as usual who I think will spoil that. So I'm very worried about any leader who doesn't think that empathy is essential <laughs> to their role. It's but, crazy that yeah. it's crazy that she thought it was important enough to have to say. Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's not just about dealing with this situation or dealing with any kind of situation as a result of um, climate change or trying to build a diverse workforce or all these things and all these challenges that we're trying to uh, address at the moment. It's also when I think about the future of work and the job displacement and things that are going to change and how different our roles are going to be. Empathy is going to be essential for anyone who wants to get ahead of machines and AI, but also anyone who wants to be able to fairly communicate these changes and support people as they go through these changes themselves. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, at least, if I look back at my last 25 years working, the leaders that I remember who resonated so closely with what I believed in and how I wanted to do things were those leaders who had strong empathy. You know, they were the ones who um, could put themselves in your shoes and who didn't see, didn't see that it was important to talk about your weaknesses but who could see that you had strengths that you could leverage. And on one question now, given that we are looking ahead... <laughs> A decade ahead. Um, I'm a bit of a pessimist. Some of that is changing because I am lucky enough to be, you know, in, in a position where, um, like you, you do as well, have great conversations with really talented people who are doing incredible work. You work for the most, you, you work <laughs> in the most optimistic publication, Ange. That's good to hear. I, I don't know what it would have called it optimistic, but I like that. I like that. I think anyone who works in news media and journalism, you are naturally, uh, it, it, it can be hard sometimes to be optimistic because you're always in the news, you're always seeing what's going on. So, but I want to ask you are, you, are you optimistic about the future? I am optimistic. I think it comes down to my personality. I'm a glass half full person. So there's... For me, there's always a solution. There's always a way out. There are always great thinkers who have the, the solutions to the problems. And I look around and I see so many incredible people doing incredible work, including you guys at Women's Agenda, and people talking about this. I feel like for the first time in a long time, we are having more conversations about these issues. We're having more conversations about what we can do better Maybe it's that I've hit a certain age and so I'm more attuned to those conversations. Um, but I think we can get there. I think it's depressing at times. It's slow. It feels very slow at times. But I think there's some great people doing great things and that gives me hope. Thank you so much, all Knowing that you're hosting this series and knowing all about having heard some of those conversations but also knowing some of the conversations that are coming up, that gives me hope as well that we can share uh, those conversations widely and particularly some of the lessons and the individuals within them who offer so much. So thanks for the privilege, and Thank you, Shirley. Okay, so that is the conversation with Shirley. And like I say, please go and check out the leadership lessons and you can hear episode one. 
You can also go and kind of scroll through all the episodes that um, Kate has recorded over the past six or so months because there is so much gold in there and they are great conversations, including with, you know, people like Julia Gillard, with uh, Kirsten Ferguson, uh, with Yasmin Poole. There are so many there. They cross all different industries. So um, go and have a look. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast. A reminder that you can find all the stories that we discussed on our website at womensagenda.com.au where you can also subscribe to our daily newsletter. Um, We did discuss mental health in this episode and if it did raise any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. A reminder also that if you are in immediate danger, call Triple O. And if you need any help and advice, uh, you can also call 1800 RESPECT or 1800 737 732. Thank you for listening.